Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You took the life of the one that provided for you and guided your children. Kathleen was the best thing you ever had. You keep saying this bullshit about Kathleen walking through the door? I walked through the door, not her. Wasn't a lie. Just wasn't the whole thing. That's the whole fucked up thing about our family. Nobody ever really just talks about anything ever. Just promise me from here on out, we just we live our own lives. Welcome back to the Staircase Podcast. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. Here we are at the end with our final episode. But knowing all that we know about this case, you're probably wondering, is the Staircase Saga really ever actually truly over? Perhaps for now, but only time will tell. And there's still so much to discuss. I'm so pleased to welcome back executive producer, showrunner and writer Antonio Campos, and co-showrunner Maggie Cohn. And later in the podcast, the man we've all been waiting for, Colin Firth. So here for one last swan dive into the story is showrunner, creator, and director Antonio Campos and co-showrunner Maggie Cohn. I cannot delay this any longer. I have to accept that we have reached the final episode of the series. And so welcome back to the podcast for our final time at least as far as we know in this moment. Maggie Cohen and Antonio Campos, thank you so much for returning to the podcast for episode eight. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, we're excited. So, you know, we're here to talk about baseball. <laughs> and <laughs> great. I'd, I'd rather talk about baseball than <laughs> anything else. But which... <laughs> <laughs> Staircase. And I know nothing so about we're here baseball. We're talk about baseball the way that Michael Peterson wants to talk about <laughs> baseball in the same way that when, you know, I was thinking, oh, baseball, of course, baseball is to Michael Peterson's sex life the way that spring break is to, you know, a uh, description of prison. And it's the sort of euphemizing and minimizing of things that are. Yeah, it is code. Deeply, deeply yeah. meaningful within this family. But something I wanted to definitely start with is throughout the podcast so far, we have really gone deeply into a lot of Michael's romantic relationships, some of his more complicated entanglements. And it seems like this final episode is an opportunity to discuss one of Michael's most significant relationships that spans this 17 years, and that's Jean-Xavier de Lestrade, the director of the original documentary. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. I wanted, before we get into the dynamic between the two men, as we understand it in the series, I wanted to talk about the casting of the phenomenal Vincent Vomignon, who is French to a T, <laughs> um, but I'm interested in how you decided to cast him for the role of Jean-Xavier. It was funny because uh, for Jean-Xavier, I think we we must have auditioned, I don't know, 80 or 90, I don't remember. But then beyond that, who the casting directors had seen, it's like, you know, you're talking about over 100 mm-hmm. people at least um, came in for that role. You know, having known Jean Xavier for as long as I've known him, and and you know, respecting him as much as I did, and knowing how thoughtful and caring he is about the process, I needed. I felt like we needed to be that thoughtful and 
caring and and take our time and not not settle for just anyone. And um, Vincent came in and he, I mean, he genuinely blew us away. He's one of those actors where you could just point a camera at him, and and he doesn't need to do mm -hmm. anything, and he's just immediately engaging and. There's a depth there. You always feel the wheels turning behind his eyes. And you also just sense this great humanity and warmth in him. And those were keys to Jean-Xavier um, as a person and as a director. It's funny, though, because it speaks to the fickle nature of memory, because in my head, we auditioned one person. It was Vincent. Like, I, like, I have no idea what Antonio is talking about. <laughs> but yeah, he was, he was very, very special, obviously. And um, we got very lucky. Now, and this is a question that could mean nothing, or this is a question that, that might have set an intention. You know, uh, Vincent Romagnon is a French Caribbean actor. He's, I think his family's from Martinique. Mm -hmm. So did it make any, did, were you trying to introduce an extra element of casting a, a black actor, a French black actor in the role versus the, like, I think Jean Xavier is just a white guy. We honestly just kind of kept it open and we saw an opportunity here where we're not casting someone so famous and recognizable that you have to like cast somebody that right. looks like that person. We, we kind of across the board, honestly, weren't thinking about appearance exactly. in casting any of these characters. In fact, I think that was a deterrent. I think that would have been a deterrent for if you looked like the character, it'd yeah. probably be less likely to cast you. <laughs> I mean, what's great is that they, I mean, it's it speaks to their level of um, craft and their commitment to learning who these people were, because I think that mm -hmm. they started to look more and more like, I don't know, like the real people in a way. I mean, they feel like the real people, I'll say that. It's embodiment, yeah. really. Um, yeah. There's a really telling moment in this final episode when Michael Peterson turns to John Xavier and he asks, we're friends, right? This is after more or less a 17-year-long saga. And Jean-Xavier's reaction is interesting. Can you help us understand that? What is Jean-Xavier's reaction to Michael's question? It's conflicted. It's a question of, of I don't know who you are necessarily. And so mm -hmm. I don't know who I was, who was asking me this question. I think what made it unique is that his relationship with him, unlike Michael's children or unlike Michael's brother, Bill, or Sophie, the relationship was pl platonic, non-biological, mm. and not familial. And so there was the opportunity for there to be friendship. And I think like every friendship, there's elements of somebody that you can respect and like, and then there's elements of that person that are complicated. And I think that um, John Xavier felt that way about Michael. There were a lot of things you know, he saw this guy in Durham who was interested in music and art and who had this traumatic childhood and who became a good father and a loving husband, but also somebody that possibly killed his wife. Um, and I think in showing Sophie um, in that manner, I think... It's not, you know, don't kill the messenger, don't blame the messenger, but she won't believe it until she sees it. Nope. Yeah. And so she needed to see it because up until that point, I think everything in her was so wanting Michael to be the image that she needed him to be. And then it ended up that this thing that she kind of trusted the most ended up being the biggest lie, the grand lie. Which is the craziest irony, and I guess this is what you guys are hurtling towards or inching towards. I'm not sure what even which how to describe it in the series where the very person who has seen more hours of Michael Peterson has seen more dimensions of Michael Peterson than anyone, even the director, mm. ultimately feels yeah. profoundly yeah. betrayed. Because up until that point, she was the documentary footage was things that she was playing with having not necessarily been in a relationship with him. But then right. Frankenstein's released, and in 2017, he, he, he's now in control. 
And now she has to hear about it via that. So it's it's like kind of the loss of control. Ugh. Um, and that line. Which is relatable. I'm the editor. I can edit right. me out if I want. Yeah. You don't. It's one of those lines that if you when you write down, you're like, I don't know how this is going to come out. Um, because it has to it has to come from such a deep, profound place. And um, you have to they have to be said by an editor in a moment, you know what I mean? Yes. Because they have to, they have to really believe that idea really deeply and feel that history. And so that when, when Juliet delivered it, it was just kind of perfection. I want to get back to the family because there is so much here in this episode that seems to shift. There were themes of sort of about the sins of the father, this idea of what one father's act or at least of what he's accused and convicted of in the saga of what happens to him how that affects a family generationally well you know from the very beginning of the series these dynamics are at play between the father and the sons and the father and the, and the daughters these things were 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 happening before kathleen died too and Kathleen is kind of holding it all together in a way. And when she goes, all of it, just all of that stuff that was there under the surface just kind of splits open and starts coming out. Because because of the the way that we're playing with time and that we're not just like jumping around um, arbitrarily to kind of like, oh, let's just do a scene in 2014. And it's like, no, no, we're kind of, we have to, we have to end in 2011. We had to have a sequence where the dynamics would come out in a way that you could understand you could understand why when you catch up with them six years later in 2017 they are they've grown up as far apart as they have and so we really had to have things come to a head in this in this final episode I think also what was interesting though is when it, it was the nuance of things breaking apart the kids separating themselves from Michael, which justified their absence in 2017 at the Alfred plea, mm -hmm. but simultaneously bringing mm -hmm. them together in that. So the dinner scene served this dual purpose of separation, but also consensus. And this is in the Mexican restaurant we're talking about? Correct. Yes. It's, it's a celebration. Like Mike, Michael, their dad is free. Um, this, the, well, they weren't anticipating it. It's a surprise. This is great news, but they get in there and it's kind of like that slow sinking realization that this is a party that no one wants to be at anymore. Oh, and it's yep. painful because you can see the, what, the Kabuki theater, whatever mm -hmm. the joy that was before. Yeah. And, and you have the cup that comes out. It yeah. just seems like everything sort of tries to echo this original dinner. And then it just starts to just fall apart. And the, the, you remember this, what it used to be like. Why does Michael, in, why doesn't he want to participate? This is what he's wanted all along. What, what happens in this moment for him? I mean, there's a very real thing, which is he's been in prison for about nine years. So that reality is something that we're dealing with, this, you know, in terms of like, how are we constructing this moment for this character? Well, a guy who's been in prison for nine years, and we know that all of this is very overwhelming. What's interesting, especially in sort of going back to episode five, for instance, is this guy that's always kind of talking in the center, the, the guy that everybody guys gathers around at a party and just regales everybody with stories. The first part of episode five, he barely says a word. And prison... I think, sort of instilled a kind of silence in him. And to be safe, he had to kind of be silent at times. I mean, he played up Michael Peterson and sort of can be a chameleon and befriend people. But there's a, there's a different Michael Peterson that's sitting at the end of that table than the one that was sitting at the table on 1810 Cedar Street. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. 
That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. From Michael, perhaps societal expectations were actually one of the things that were his greatest burden. And that in prison, when those are somewhat removed and maybe replaced with a different sort of society, there was actually some relief. And then you transition back to, as Antonio was saying, he didn't know whether or not he, this is the first time he's seen his family in a way that, you know, there's not someone facilitating the visit that, you know, in his head, there could be this moment of like, I need to be back there. Like I, that's where it's safe here. I don't know what's gonna, you know? Um, Sure. And so I think, we always wanted to have prison not necessarily be the worst place for him. <laughs> well, and I think his memoir spends a lot of time there. Exactly. Describing, if I understand it correctly. It's the majority of it. Yeah. It, it kind of, it kind of fuels him in a way. I mean, look, I don't, I would never say that Michael Peters was happier in prison, but I think that he was very inspired by his time in prison. When we interviewed your researcher, Michael Matthews, he said that Michael Peterson liked talking about prison a lot more than anything else, really. What we did was we had to take everything that Michael Peterson says or writes with a grain of salt because Michael's making himself the hero of his own story. And we just kind of were trying to read the book between the lines where we needed to and also, you know, gauge what he said in the interview versus what we would read. And um, if you're interested in diving deeper, the, the memoirs are an interesting place to go. You know, like we were kind of doing what Martha was doing, going through his books and looking for kind of code. Right. So Martha's therapist suggests that she read his books to understand him better. And she's shocked to discover that there's a a gay character in there. And she's always been reluctant to talk talk to him or anyone in the family about her queer identity. And we even see in the hotel room in this episode that she reveals this to her own sister, Margaret, and seems almost pleased the way that it goes down. I mean, it was a secret that uh, it wasn't supposed to be a secret. Um, It was supposed to be something that she was going to share with her sister before at Christmas. Martha wanted to tell Margaret to her face. And then, of course, Christmas didn't happen in the way it was supposed to happen. And right. That's how something that was exciting and beautiful became buried. And it became, I think, in part, felt dangerous and like something that she needed to hide in the face of events that were occurring. Um, And we kind of, we always thought that that was important. The idea that, you know, people had something to say around Christmas that had they had that opportunity, that this story would have ended far differently. Well, and I, you feel for Martha because every time she tries to bring up the truth, it seems that it's a problem. Why are you bringing me this problem? And I have to take care of it for you. Um, And Margaret, they have this discussion and Margaret's gotten divorced by now. And then, but why is it I always have to take care of you and your problems? And I think she's just trying to say, I'm just trying to get the truth. I'm just trying to to say what's not being said because you never talk about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which brings me to Todd. What happens to him? Is this, is this accurate? And then how did you build on that? I mean, uh, a lot of what, a lot of what's there about Todd is based on a abundant, abundant amount of, of videos on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. And he clearly saw it as an outlet and a, and a way of dealing with his issues. Yeah, I mean, I think each of the each of the kids reacted differently to becoming part of the public eye and the way that kind of manifested in Todd was to lean into that. I mean, if you're going to have a camera on you, why not be the person holding it? You know, I think for him, you know, maybe that that does bring a level of comfort, the ability to communicate via media, media. Um, 
And so that that's something that 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 was an outlet he chose and it wasn't an outlet that the rest of the children chose. I mean, I think it also says a lot about the character that and maybe I don't know what this says about Todd, the real person, but I think you can sort of read into it, which is, you know, someone that's very comfortable speaking into a camera, but not necessarily engaging in a dialogue. And so I think there is something heartbreakingly lonely about Todd. You know, mm. he was he was he was his dad's like Michael called him a centurion, you know, he was his dad yep. is, and he was there along the way. And I think I mean, it took a toll on the kid. You know, if you think about all we just had we had a lot of compassion for all these characters and all the, the real kids, and then that turned into compassion yeah. for these characters that we created based on them, which was they were really young when this happened. And they were just doing their best to defend their father. And um and then then they were kind of left just floating in the ether to, to try and figure it out on their own. And um they just did their best to 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 do that and survive. By the end of the story, there's they find some peace, I think, or they just find there's something that they're doing that they're doing for themselves that makes them feel good and allows them to communicate, um, which is something that they didn't really ever get to do with their own father. Yeah. Um, so the connection with Kathleen and her sister Candace is this moment that's that's really I, I don't, I'm sort of out of adjectives with you guys, but it's this essential moment where we see Kathleen kind of reaching out and saying, you know, to Candace in, and she's in the doctor's office and Kathleen's sort of reaching out in this way of like, let's go do go, go to Turks and Caicos. Let's just get away from here. And she, you know, in, in this situation that she's in is like, are you crazy? And it seems like one of those things that whether or not she thought about it later really helps inform just this, there's the profound loss of losing the sister, but the fantastic performance, by the way, by Rosemary DeWitt, who's just phenomenal, just phenomenal yeah. in this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but these the victim statements, which you wrote in this brilliant way of sort of combining 2011 and 2017. And I remember yeah. those two moments, but the way that you decided to write them yeah. was perfect because it talk about this decision because it just intersects this feeling these years apart 2011 2017 but it's just so powerful together talk about how you wrote that she's stuck in a loop here a bit and there's just like that's why there was just this heartbreaking connection that we were making that that really kind of showed how how deep this 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 anger towards Michael Peterson was and the, the, how deep this pain was and that, 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 that pain is still as alive six years later and that she's committed to this fight to just making sure that Michael Peterson pays for what she believes he did. And we were very aware of how, people's perception of Candace yes. in casting her and writing her and making sure that she felt human and that we didn't make her a villain in any way. When you see the things in isolation, when you just watch that thing in the documentary where she's just going on this, what might be perceived as a rant, but just like angrily sort of yelling at Michael Peterson and the judge and and just having this moment, getting it out. You can't appreciate where it's coming from maybe. And and putting, putting them together, right. um, I think allowed you to sort of see the pain more clearly and and there was just so many wonderful moments um, in those two speeches that we just felt like, well, they just kind of speak to each other. And we always knew that the end of the series was going to be this thing where time is kind of folding in on itself and that things are intersecting and they're cutting and we, you know, and that became this sort of almost like the spine of that sequence. Yeah. I mean, you wanted to, speaking to the scene in the doctor's office, it's, we wanted to give, which I, I don't think is an uncommon moment for people who have lost someone. So it's Candace, but it's whomever has lost someone abruptly and tragically is that moment of, I wish I had said, yes, let's go to Turks and Caicos. Yes. yes. Let, I'm buying the tickets now. Let's go. Yep. And she, mm-hmm. And that's not what happened because we always think we have more time. And so I think part of that, that passion behind her, you know, 
her courtroom speeches was dealing with that, you know, regret um, mm -hmm. and manifesting that, that anger and something that like, I, I didn't do it then, but I am going to do it now. <laughs> and I, I'm going to say what needs to be said. And this must just be maddening for someone who truly thinks that she understands what really happened. And I appreciated that perspective. And, and it's also, you have to remember, like, everybody thinks it's over and then it's not. <laughs> right. And, it, and that's very much the experience of it. It's like, all right, we're going to trial again. You know, there's just that, okay, like it, you feel the kids feel it. Candace, like everybody's just like, this has to end. And, you know, I think that all everybody involved in the story is like, it's like I mean, I think even in the writer's room, this, this has to end or else, you know, episode nine would be us in the writer's room talking about it. And then episode 10 is us in a podcast talking about it. And, but I have to like, that was like, that's the story. That was the staircase. Us. That is the, all these, this is the Escher of it all. And it all kind of, you know, we, I, I feel like episode eight is where we get to really live in the Escher staircase of it all the most. And it's because I feel like we've created, you know, leading up to it, we're sort of, we're on such solid ground in terms of, we're on terra firma when it comes to the story and the characters that we have the freedom to kind of get dreamy and weird and, and get into people's heads. And, and, and it feels like that everybody is just processing, like what just happened? And so there's, there, there is just like that disorientation that we want to capture of where am I? Because it, because we felt like that's what it must feel like for to, to be in any case like this, that just keeps going and going and going. So then I would love to, you know, with the time that we have get to the, the real fundamental dreamy moment of time in the future and the present sort of, I wouldn't even say collapsing. I don't know how you guys are describing it, you know, swirling on itself. Mm -hmm. And that is with it's Kathleen and Michael in the house towards mm -hmm. the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it because you think, oh, here we are. They're going to just tell us what really the fuck happened. No, mm -hmm. that is not what's going to happen here. <laughs> no. And I'm thrilled that you didn't give us this. Why am I saying this? Because I don't know why as a journalist, I'm so happy you didn't <laughs> give us the answer. Mm -hmm. It's not anything I've ever seen before, especially not in true crime. Well, you know, again, this is when we were trying to do something that wasn't typical true crime. It was, yeah. that's why we, you know, this is. <laughs> yeah, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike. Makes but this is, this is something that we were thinking about all along. And it's like, we can't set the audience up to expect or to be disappointed that they don't get the answer. I think we, we've worked really hard to that. And I think that, you know, we achieve that. We hope we achieve that. And it, even if we said this is what, what happened, it would still just be, we think this is what happened. It's just, we knew what, right. that that wasn't what we were trying to do. And we just knew that the end had to be more of an experience. And it was great because here's the, the way it breaks down is like that day, we knew that they rented America's Sweetheart. We knew she had a phone call around 11 and that she had to use Michael's computer because she had forgotten her laptop. So we knew that thing. And then to us, from there, it opened up the possibility of this conversation, this, this, what, this, this, if they had spoken about this thing, what could that be like? What would he say in a more intimate way than he had said in that interview with John Xavier? Yeah, it just always made sense, though, that he would, on the day that Michael Pearson truly became free by admitting to killing his wife by taking the Alfred plea and saying guilty, that yeah. he would, in his mind's eye, return to the place, the last place he truly felt he saw her alive, and then re-envision that moment, given everything he had experienced the past 16 years. There was something that Michael said to us in an interview that stuck, stuck with us. He had talked about redreaming. He talked about how he could control his dreams. He said, "No, no, I don't have nightmares because when I start having a nightmare, I wake up and I go back to sleep and I redream it." And we just thought that was a really uh, striking thing for Michael Peterson to say. And so, the idea of living in, in a Michael Peterson dream at the end, and the sense that Kathleen is saying things, but then there's like she's saying you'll be okay, but there's a there's a sense of 
resentment behind it. Antonio, am I recalling correctly where she says, why didn't you tell me in this kind of gentle way? And then mm-hmm. it appears that she says it almost silently in this. Yeah, at the end, yeah. There's no she's... words, but you can see she's saying it in a really angry way. Why didn't you tell me? Yeah. But that's silent. Yeah, and he doesn't hear it. Yeah. It was important that Kathleen had agency as well, that despite Michael's attempts to redream something and recreate it in a way that was suitable and palatable for himself, that he did not, he no longer had that power. You know, and that she would also be able to have a voice in that moment and say the thing that we all would, I believe she would have said, and we all wanted, we, we want her to say. Something that always um, irked me about the original documentary was the ending, where he's quoting Shakespeare, all are punished. He's, you know, Leonard Cohen plays, and I don't believe for a moment that Michael Peterson's a Leonard Cohen fan. And I just feel like it felt so orchestrated. Again, that is the choice of the filmmaker. It was satisfying, but it, this, the ending here actually feels like the truer ending. I've learned by now that I'm not going to get the answer, but I think I'm something I'm going to have a decision in my own mind. The camera pans around to the back of Michael. He's in bed. He's in this apartment now alone. Sophie's gone. His children aren't necessarily that interested in communicating with him. And he's just solitary. And you get this close up shot of Colin Firth's face. And I come to my conclusion. And then I text Brandon and I say, the producer, and I say, okay. Uh, I can't wait for you to watch it. And I'm thinking he's going to say the same thing that see the same thing that I saw. And he sees something totally different than what I saw. He stops at the smile. I focus on the few seconds after the smile. And the point of this all is, is that what I love and also what I will still find an enduring thing that I will chew on forever is this. We just don't know. There was an attempt at kind of shooting Michael in a way that you didn't have this direct access into his eyes. A lot of characters, you there there are moments where you have sort of a, a clear, straight access into their eye, and we were kind of withholding this sort of like this striking kind of moment for the end. And it was important that the last moment um, called back to the very first moment, which was him in bed looking ah. at a picture of Kathleen. And that we've kind of come back to that. But in that in that scene, we stay on his back. And so this was the moment where we get, let's like, let's look into the eyes of this guy and let's see if we can tell after this journey that we've gone, if we can tell after all of this, what what's going on there. And and we knew that, you know, if you go and look at the way it's scripted, it's he sits alone in his room, alone with himself for the first time in a long while. He considers the life he's lived and the little remaining life he has let to live. The camera begins to push in and come around until we are face to face with him. As we look directly into Michael's eyes at the end of this journey, we believe it may be possible for someone to be guilty and innocent at the same time. Then, for a moment, his lips curl and you think he just smiled, like someone who got away with something. But maybe it wasn't a smile. It's hard to say. Even if you knew for sure, what would that tell you? So that's what Colin had to to work with. That's exactly right. Damn. He he understood the assignment. <laughs> if you get to the end of this shot, yeah, and the actor <laughs> doesn't sell that idea, then like, you know, that shot doesn't really matter, but it was amazing and you felt it on set f- from everybody watching around the monitor. Colin was able to communicate this very complicated idea of being two things at the same time where, you know, depending on how you're looking at him, um, you're going to read it differently. But you also just kind of, I think, at the end, there's a satisfaction in, in I mean, the hope is that, that you're okay living in the unknowing uh, at the very end. If, if the original thesis was to help us understand that knowing the answers in in the true crime genre and demanding the facts and having those facts lead you to something concrete that's a puzzle piece to snap together and that's not how life works and that you will live in the gray and there's ambiguity and there's complicated emotions and you may never know what happened but the pleasure of that in this series has been 
absolutely thrilling. And I can't explain it when someone's like, well, do you know what happens at the end? Yes, but and I'm satisfied, but no, and I'm satisfied. Right. I am like sad that this is ending. I'm just thunderstruck by the incredible work. I am so like proud to be a small little like molecule like drifting off to the side of this project. It's very thrilling for me. So thank you so much. And once again, um, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, Antonio Campos and Maggie Cohen. Congratulations on some phenomenal work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. It's been it's been honestly like such a pleasure talking to you. It's it, it means a lot to hear your deep reads on the show and like your attention to detail and to know that the things that we intended were coming across is cool. Actor Colin Firth is so convincing as Michael Peterson that after watching him for the entire limited series, I have to admit, I did a bit of a double take when interviewing him for this podcast episode. Am I looking at Colin or Michael? Rest assured, it's the British Oscar winner himself who describes his first foray into television since he first played Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice all the way back in 1995. And now he shares why he didn't actually want to meet the real Michael Peterson. He also helps us understand, one last time, why we all remain fascinated by true crime. Colin Firth, welcome to the Companion Podcast to the HBO Max original series, The Staircase. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I've spent several hours watching you play Michael Peterson with stunning verisimilitude. <laughs> it is an extraordinary performance, so much so that the blur of his, who he is and your character is just, I think audiences are going to really respond to it. And so I was wondering, most of the people we've spoken with, that's Antonio Campos, Maggie Cohen, uh, Michael Stolbarg, were all familiar with the documentary series before the HBO Max series was greenlit. Um, what about you? Did you know The Staircase? Did you know the Michael Peterson case before you signed on? Not a thing. Um, really? Nothing. Never heard of Michael Peterson, so I came absolutely fresh. In some ways, I, I think there was an interesting uh, test as to its, you know, its vividness and um, how just how well-rounded it was and how alive it was, um, that I got such a three-dimensional picture mm -hmm. of all of these people um, off the page. So that when I, I, of course, I immediately went to the documentary, but um, I found that it, uh, it was very much what I would have expected, having read it. So having seen this adaptation, uh, and then having the having it sort of coloured in, if you like, by um, you know uh, images and sounds of the real people, and not being at all surprised, I think was uh, a testament to the um, you know the the sort of truthfulness and life of the script. So Tony Collette, who plays Kathleen Peterson in the series, had a challenge. She's playing a person whom we never know, we never see uh, on screen in the documentary series, and that's its own specific challenge. But with you, millions of people have watched The Staircase over the span of 17 years. So we're talking about someone that people felt like they knew, or at the very least, scrutinized over and over and over again. So talk about what the challenge is of playing someone who is a really dynamic character and charismatic person anyway on screen, but on top of that, really familiar to those who know the documentary very well. Yes, I, I would challenge that familiarity. Mm. Um, I, you know, you might think you're familiar. Um, and I think that goes to the very heart of what this exercise is about. You know, we, we, we make our judgments. We, um, a character might resonate one way or another. You might be charmed. You might be repelled. Um, you might make decisions uh, about what you think may or may not have happened or uh, develop theories. They're all open to question. Um, mm. And I think a lot of us don't, you know, we prefer answers to questions. Yes. You know, we want resolution. We gravitate towards certainty and um i you know 
we can't have it really mm-hmm. um, however much we might crave it and however much we might um, create narratives uh, which uh, try to simulate certainty and clarity and I, I think this is very much an exploration into how elusive that is it's rather like being in a in a constantly moving maze mm-hmm. where you know you think you know where you are and suddenly there's actually instead of a straight path there's a, a wall and a left turn yes and i i think there's something um quite positive about it um you know i Yes, there's, there's a, we think we're familiar, and this isn't just applied to how we portray and represent the character and the world of this. It, it, it might actually resonate with everybody when they reflect on the people in their own lives. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. How familiar are we really with the person that we live with? You know, do, you, do we know each other really, you know, even if we've been together for 50 years? Yeah, it's funny. I was going to ask, Michael Peterson in his own life was untruthful. He, at least it seemed that no one in his life knew all facets of who he was. Mm. And it's funny because I was going to ask, how do you bring truth to a character who is fundamentally dishonest? But I think what you're saying is, (laughs) we all are. (laughs) Well, it may be in different forms. Maybe we don't even know we're being inauthentic. Maybe Mm -hmm. we believe our own narrative, you know. Um, And then there are people who are quite consciously lying. Um, they're all different levels of, 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 of deception and different reasons why a person might be unknowable. I mean, somebody might be, you know, um, d- deliberately, uh, you know, fabricating a version of themselves and other people, I mean, other people are probably just doing it involuntarily because that's what being socialized means. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't put every facet of our character out there. There are certain things that it's not socially acceptable to put out there. Right. Um, you know, um, maybe we want to present our best selves or, you know, we're masking insecurity with, with bluster or, you know, there are all kinds of things that uh, reasons why um, we, you know, either embellish ourselves or um, conceal our defects or something. But you're right. I mean, you know, this this man has has is on the record as having, you know, been untruthful. You know, it's it spans many years. Yes. Um, the uh, the the narrative is is not chronological. Um, so trying to find where you are <clears throat> in all of this um, was very very difficult. And so I would say the experience was largely one of being out of my depth. Given how complicated this story is, how did you keep everything straight? Did you find yourself dependent on the script, or did you also research further afield? The script, um, that's really was it. That's what I had. That was the raw material. Um, I wasn't really interested in looking outside of it, you know, researching. Mm. Um, really? Not particularly. I mean, I wouldn't say I wasn't interested, but that wasn't what helped me. I felt that this was such a well-achieved, resonant, rich piece of material that it was enough to contain. When you're watching it, it's like you're one crisper gene away from shared DNA with this performance with Michael Peterson. (laughs) Um, Did you ever meet Michael Peterson? What kind of access did you desire and what did you avoid? I, well, for the reasons in some ways I've, I've just laid out, it wasn't, I didn't feel it would be helpful to me. Michael Peterson, because I was in this um, very, I think, well-structured and incredibly meticulously and thoughtfully, um, you know, modulated piece that I felt what I needed was contained within that. Um, And I felt that if I had another influence, which is, you know, the character of the real Michael Peterson, and if I had um, an emotional response to meeting him, if I, you know, whatever relationship, you know, um, unfolded during that meeting might steer me one way or, or the other. And I wanted to stay as sort of light footed as possible, if you like, for what mm-hmm. I was, what was being asked of me within the, that sort of ecosystem we were working. 
So I didn't, I, I was afraid it would be unhelpful. Right. Um, and I wasn't convinced it would lead to uh, a deeper understanding. I just f probably felt I was better placed to submit myself to, the, to what was written and to those who were, who were guiding me. You know, it's funny, there are two levels of performance, at least as I'm watching as the viewer. I'm watching, you know, an, an actor inhabit this character of Michael Peterson. And then there's this other layer where I'm watching a performance of Michael Peterson and seeing if the actor is trying to give me any type of reveals about whether or not he thinks Michael Peterson did or didn't do it. I'm looking at expressions. Is the veil going to be lifted? Is there anything that he's going to be doing that's going to potentially convey, I know what happened? I'm actually quite pleased to hear that. Um, with, and it's also the very, very reason why I wouldn't answer any questions about that. Um, <laughs> because I wouldn't want to say anything that led you one way or the other. I mean, you're welcome to um, make up your mind about that, you know, you're welcome to to look for clues uh, or find them. Right. But I don't really want to help you do that because I think it defeats the purpose of the exercise. Well, and I think we see in this series the from the blood spatter evidence to Michael Peterson himself. It's like these Rorschach tests. You see what it is you want to see. The blood spatter says that he did it or the blood spatter says that he didn't. Michael Peterson is a narcissist. Michael Peterson is a loving father. It's sort of what either what we want to see or maybe what he reveals to us. But yeah. as someone who came to this kind of true crime saga from the outside, from a fresh perspective, but also got to understand Michael Peterson, at least as a character as written, more intimately than anyone else, why do you think it's this story, this death, and this man that has captivated us for so many years? I, I don't know. Um, I don't know why any true crime story captures pe captivates people, really. But I understand that it does, and I'm not immune to it, even though I don't tend to go looking for it. That's not the genre that I sort of, you know, s scroll through and the menu looking for, you know. I think we find puzzles irresistible. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I, since I decided I was taking this job on and I started talking about it to people, I was, I've actually been astounded at just how many people I'd known who I'd known for years not only were captivated by this story, but were really into the whole true crime thing. And these are people, I, as I said, I've known for years. I didn't know they were into true crime. I didn't know, you know. And they weren't all the, you know, they weren't necessarily the people I might have thought to, to be the usual suspects. You know, in a way, I've had more questions than answers about that as well. But in those conversations, I suppose I've wondered, is it the mystery? Is it the... Um, is it the challenge of trying to put pieces together? and making sense of things. Mm -hmm. yes. And also, I think the darker aspects of that, because they're also benign mysteries. I mean, you can do a jigsaw puzzle or, you know, but the fact of it being dark, I think, you know, these are areas that we're afraid of. Um, this unfolds in a, um, a family home, which is, seems to be possibly ostensibly healthy, mm -hmm. um, yes. where there's a measure of success. Uh, and... You know, if we have lives that look a bit like that, are we a little bit scared that the stuff we don't know? Um, you know, do we want to peer into um, into into those into chaos, into um, things that where it all is just horribly disfigured? Is it? Are we living illusions? Um, maybe we all have a bit of. Um, a fear of these things and uh, you know we sometimes our, our our taste in entertainment is to do with escape sometimes it's to do with reassurance and optimism sometimes it's uh, to do with you know laughter but we since the beginning of storytelling there's been the scary stuff as well and maybe you know that helps us reach some sort of accommodation with with our fears and it's the enduring mystery of this case that keeps us in, in, entranced by it. It's almost like if we found out if Michael Peterson confessed tomorrow or, or we really found out what happened, this would all dissipate. Well, I think that might be true. I mean, whenever you have something which is, uh, depends on, on, on mystery, whether it's a detective story 
or you know a ghost story um i i often find that find you know a, an explanation is is terribly disappointing <laughs> you suddenly come back into the world of the prosaic yes you know when if everything's explained then then all of that magic is is out of the window and so we 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 have and we're very conflicted because we we feel cheated if there's no explanation um but you know the explanation is often terribly banal and disappointing you know same with the conjurer you know where, where yeah. how did he where did he get the rabbit from what what just came out of his sleeves if he told you how he did it you again you'd feel you'd feel cheated well Colin Firth I greatly appreciate your time and you've given us insight into one of the one of the most popular and maddening stories that we have in American popular culture. So thank you. And the Michael Peterson performance is extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for our final episode. Thanks to Maggie Cohen and Antonio Campos for joining us and to Colin Firth for bringing closure to the official companion podcast to The Staircase. And thank you to our audience for listening, watching, and being as utterly obsessed with this case as we are. One last time, I'm Nancy Miller. The Staircase podcast is produced by HBO Max in conjunction with Campfire Studios in association with High Five Content. The Campfire team includes executive producers Ryan Alexander Steiner, Rebecca Evans, and Ross Dinnerstein. High Five Content's executive producer is Andrew Jacobs. Our senior producer is Brandon Phibbs. Our coordinator is Mary Ald. Editing and mixing by Robbie Carver. Music from the series The Staircase by Danny Bensi and Sonder Urians. Legal by Diana Palacios. Special thanks to Moses Martinez at Loud and Strong Studios and David Ertsua at Studio Awesome. And a special thanks to you, our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. So if you have a minute, one last time, please review and rate this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.